that involves getting in a small boat with a tag on the end of a pole and trying to get close enough and timing it correctly to slap that tag on the back of the whale, uh, which goes on with just suction cups. So it's really nice, not invasive at all. Um, you know, they don't love being approached in a boat, but once the tag goes on, we can observe their behavior with the accelerometers in the tag without continuing to pester them. My name is uh, Ellen Chenoweth, and I am a whale foraging ecologist by training, and I'm currently the director of the University of Alaska Southeast's Rural Alaska Students in One Health Research Program. Welcome to episode 25 of Below the Tide. My name is Liz and I am your host. If you haven't listened to episode 24, definitely go back and check that one out. You will get the full intro to humpback foraging, feeding, all of that. Ellen gives a great overview. If this is your first time listening to Below the Tide, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Below the Tide is basically a podcast where I'm trying to make marine science more accessible, more easy to learn by bringing you straight to the source, straight to the marine science experts. I'm giving them a place where they can share their research, share some of their work, share some of their great stories in an easy to understand way. You can follow on social media at Below the Tide Pod for educational resources and updates about the podcast. So I hope you grab a coffee and enjoy this episode. How did you kind of get interested in humpbacks and kind of this area of research? Yeah, so um, when I was in kindergarten, my kindergarten teacher did a unit on recycling and a unit on whales. And I really remember that. I got really into both of those things and just kind of that stayed with me that, you know, the idea of like environmental stewardship and and whales are just really amazing animals. I just thought they were the biggest thing in the ocean, so they must be the coolest thing. Um, and they're related to us, which is really cool. So they're just mammals like us, but they live in this environment that is completely alien. So the ways that they've used that mammal body plan and adapted it to the ocean is really exciting, really interesting to me. There's a ton we don't know about them. I mean, they're like this animal that everybody recognizes, but so little is really known about them. Um, Sometimes I... (laughs) I don't know if this is a good metaphor or not, but I, I think they're like the Mona Lisa in that way. Like everybody recognizes them, but we don't know anything about her, you know? Yeah. So um, so there's a lot to learn. So it's, it's a great thing to study that way. I'm from Michigan originally, so I uh, don't have, you know, a long personal history with ocean research, but um, I was really interested in whales. So I ended up moving to Glacier Bay um, for the summer and I did a few summers up there first as just working at a hotel as like a housekeeper um and then later working for the park service as as a student research technician and so that was kind of my first my first jobs in science and biology um and it was amazing (laughs) i loved it and so yeah i just kept um kept finding people to work with i spent most of my career here in sitka working with jan straley and she just is retiring um, this this month. So um, yeah, I mean, she mentored me from basically right out of undergrad all through my graduate program, and you know now I'm a I'm teaching classes here. So wow. And what was the name of your kindergarten teacher? Mrs. Topper. Mrs. Topper. Okay. 
And she has a copy of my dissertation. I sent it to her. <laughs> oh my goodness. I love that. <laughs> Got acknowledged in, in my, uh, my dedication section. So it's always that one teacher or like that one random person in your life. Yep. Yep. It's pretty cool. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure what inspired her, got her interested in whales in the middle of Michigan, but we definitely shared that passion. So <laughs> that's so cool. And what is your favorite thing about humpbacks? My favorite thing about humpbacks. Um, oh gosh. Well, they're so cool. But I, if you've ever seen a whale breach, it's just a really incredible experience. And they're the best breachers out there. So maybe that. The first whale I ever saw, because I was, I'm from Montreal, and then I moved across Canada and I was on Vancouver Island. The first whale I ever saw, it was a humpback and her calf oh. breaching. And I was just like, I'm going to live here forever. This <laughs> <is it." laughs> That's, I had a similar experience when I was... 10 years old, my mom took us on a vacation to Alaska and we went whale watching. And I already was excited about whales, but I told her after that trip, I was like, I'm going to move to Alaska. So <laughs> here I am. What does, or what did a day in your life of this kind of research look like? Yeah. So when we were out doing the field work, um, it was really fun. We were on a, I think it's like a 40 foot, 50 foot. The captain will be mad at me for not giving his boat enough credit, but <laughs> a big long sailboat um, and we had a research crew of about four people and so we lived on this boat at the hatchery site and you know most whale research you go out in the boat and you look for whales during the day <laughs> like you drive the boat around and you try to find whales um, here we just sat there and waited for the whales to come to us so it was really more of a stakeout than it was you know a whale survey for example um, so by the end, our captain was like, we haven't used hardly any gas. Like, what are we going to do with all this fuel that you guys bought for this trip? Um, <laughs> so it was kind of unusual that way. But, you know, the whales would come in at midnight. It would be dark out. They come in at 4 a.m. You know, by then in Sitka, it is starting to get light. Um, but we named one of the whales, nicknamed it PJ, because we were always in our pajamas trying to do research on this whale um, <laughs> at all hours of the night uh, when it would come in. So. You know, we just hear splashing, get up, see the whale. And then at that point, we're trying to do things like get photos of its uh, back to, so we can identify it either from the dorsal fin or from its tail if it does fluke mm -hmm. up. Um, we had a prey mapping robot boat <laughs> that you could drive around with like a joystick that we used to map um, all the prey in the area so we could look at changes in fish distribution over time. And we were really interested in trying to see if we could possibly capture, you know, a feeding event on that instrument, uh, which we never got close enough for that. Um, we were trying to get underwater footage of the whales feeding and the big, and then we were trying to get um, biopsy samples, so tissue samples from the whale. Mm -hmm. And we do that with a crossbow that has a specialized tip on it. So it goes into the side of the whale and pulls out a, a piece of the whale about the size of like a pencil eraser. Mm -hmm. And it's just a little bit of tissue and fat. And we can use that to figure out, um, you know, what the chemical composition of the whale is, which tells us a little bit about what they might've been feeding on. Um, we can look at hormones, we can look at DNA um, for uh, sex. So <clears throat> we're trying to get 
tissue samples, and then we're trying to put tags on. And that involves getting in a small boat with a tag on the end of a pole and trying to get close enough and timing it correctly to slap that tag on the back of the whale, uh, which goes on with just suction cups. So it's really oh, yeah. not, not invasive at all. Um, you know, they don't love being approached in a boat, but once the tag goes on, we can observe their behavior with the accelerometers and the tag without continuing to pester them. So, oh, um, cool. Yeah. So and what would the accelerometer kind of tell you? So that is basically, it tells you acceleration in three different directions. So mm -hmm. it tells you if the whale's pitching up and down, so tipping its head down or up, if it's turning left or right, and if it's rolling to the right side or the left side. So it records all that information as numbers on a spreadsheet. And then we have um, very cool software that was developed out of the University of New Hampshire that can recreate what those movements look like in a swimming whale. So it's a little whale animation and you can see it diving, oh, cool. see it kind of lunging at its food and coming to the surface and just kind of being a whale. Um, so that allows us to just kind of recreate the, you know, visually what it would look like for a whale to be doing those behaviors. And it helps you identify important behaviors that we're interested in, like how often it actually feeds, how often does it open its mouth and capture food? Um, how often, or how much time is it spending at the surface trying to recover from feeding? Because that's maybe an indication of how much energy it's spent feeding um, down below. So if you're running really hard, you have to breathe really hard. And so for a whale, that looks like spending a little bit more time at the surface. Um, and then they also record, you know, the sounds, underwater sounds. So there's a lot of researchers that spend a lot of time studying that, but I just handed off all that data. I didn't have to do it. <laughs> I was more interested in the body movements. Yeah. And so you were saying that you would kind of wait and listen to hear some sort of splashing and then you knew that a whale was kind of in the vicinity. Mm -hmm. Do you, did that like wake you up or like, what if you're like, do you have someone on watch? Like, what does this look like? Yeah, we didn't really have someone on watch, um, but I didn't sleep a lot that trip. <laughs> so uh but yeah we were so close i mean you're right in the berth you know you're basically sleeping against the side of the boat and so um those kind of sounds tend to wake you up but it was fun i got up one time because i heard the splashing and i looked around and i saw the whale and it was so close to the boat it was the first day that we had parked the boat kind of right in the middle of where the whale wanted to be ultimately we didn't know that at the time because we'd just gotten there but so the whale was really close to the boat i think because it was surprised that we were there and so I had a, a friend that I was working with who was a research assistant for me. And I was like, I have to wake her up. And so I just walked out and I would like put my hands on the side of her head as she was sleeping. I was like, you have to see this. She like woke up. She was like so freaked out. Um, but it was just, I mean, I just didn't know what else to do. Like, I was just like, you have to see this. I mean, there's a whale right here. And I'm sorry, yeah. to wake up, but I, I, it's amazing. So it was exciting. Wow. And so like once you realized that you were in the middle of where this whale wanted to be, did you guys move throughout a certain area or you kind of stayed in the same place? There were two sites that we were interested in that were kind of close together. So we went, we spent the night in both places, just kind of depending on where the whales were, were at um, and where they were releasing fish, fish recently. So, but mostly we, we stuck, we were only there for I think 17 days. Um, so, you know, we really had to try to use our time wisely and there were really just four whales that we 
identified that were feeding on juvenile salmon that year. Um, we saw a lot of other whales just kind of cruise on by and they either didn't know about it or weren't interested or um, had better things to do. Uh, we're not sure, but it definitely seemed to be this kind of minority of whales that were focusing on this very specific prey that you need specific um, behaviors in order to capture. What was something that you didn't think that you were going to see or find out during this, your time in the field? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, the most incredible thing was actually getting attacked on the whale. So that was, it was very difficult. They're very unpredictable in their behavior when they're feeding in these small areas. Um, so even getting a tag on was just very exciting. Like you're very close to the whale. I mean, I could see it through the water and it's, I was looking at me and it just kind of knew I had it. Like I knew it couldn't really get out. Um, so it basically, it tried to, tried to like pull its back down to avoid surfacing its back. Um, but eventually we were able to just, um, kind of hold tight and wait until it, it did roll its back up. And then I could just um, bring the, the long pole down on its back and just put the tag on it. So um, that was a really cool um, experience for sure. And um, but, you know, we that was the only time we got a tag on. And that really? tag, yeah. And that tag, I think maybe because of the cold water, um, we had borrowed these from California. It the, it just stopped working like after like 10 minutes of recording. So. We spent the whole next day trying to find the tag and then when we downloaded it you know it, it had died on us so that was frustrating so we didn't end up getting a lot of tag information from the whales at the hatcheries we got information on whales feeding on other types of prey but um what that meant was that we were like well we can't we're not going to be able to know you know what its feeding rates are like we're not going to be able to see those identify those lunge events on the mm -hmm. tag data but what we realized was the whales were feeding so shallow that we could actually just observe them. And so it was funny. I mean, we had all this fancy technology, all of which was, and I'm like, I haven't told you all the stories about stuff breaking, but like, it's not easy when you're in the field and there's no, you know, you've got no internet, you've got no um, hardware store. Like you're trying to make, keep all of these instruments in working order. And um, most of them don't even have a manual because they're so, so specialized. So um, we're struggling with all this technology and then, you know, one day I just, we, we pulled in for the night and I just climbed up on the deck and I could just hear in the darkness, like the whale feeding, I could hear it breathing and I could hear it lunging through the water. And so I ended up just sitting there with a notebook and a stopwatch and just writing down all the times that I heard a whale feed and I heard a whale breathe. And that data actually went into my dissertation on you know the feeding rates of whales on the specific prey and it just felt very i mean it's so quiet out there it's so beautiful um so dark and just to be using such basic technology to do research was uh, it was kind of cool after you know all the stress that we had about trying to get the right equipment out there yeah for sure and like these tags are you supposed to be getting them back from the whale like or does the whale keep it <laughs> So the suction cups only stay on for about a day at the most. Um, and when they fall off, they, it transmits a, a signal. Oh, okay. And so we can track, track the tags and they float with the little antenna out of the water so you can find it, scoop it back up, and then just plug it into your computer and download the data. Whoa, so high tech. Yes, high tech, <laughs> very expensive. They're like, yeah. you know, 
in the $20,000 zone of how much these tags cost. And you're just, you're putting it on a, like best case scenario, you put it on a whale and the whale just swims off into the ocean with it. So it's a little, it's a little stressful. Um, oh really- my goodness. I think, yeah, like that's the thing that I've learned through this podcast is the amount of money that goes like into a fish's stomach and I'm never going to see this fish again, but here's a few thousand dollars and it's, it's crazy how much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Them. And I was really lucky that we had collaborators. I mean, a lot of the equipment that I used was just borrowed from other researchers. So um, you still got to pay for insurance and things like that. But um, but that helps a lot. People help each other out. And, and so these whales that have now figured out that they are being served juvenile salmon, how did like did you look into potential effects on fishing industry and like what do the hatcheries think of this yeah so that was kind of the other half of my dissertation so i did a whole economic analysis so like you said exactly like i spent a lot of time wondering how does this affect the whales but we also want to know how it affects the fishermen and the people that work at the hatcheries Mm -hmm. um and so then the people that work at the hatcheries are kind of working on behalf of the fishermen um so they're funded by fishing groups in part um so the fishermen and the hatcheries are kind of on the same team in that sense. But um, yeah, so we found that when we look at the return rates of salmon, so how many salmon survive and come back to hatcheries in years where there's whales there compared to years where there weren't whales there, um, we found that about a million dollars total over five years from these five different sites was being lost to whales. Mm-hmm. So. Um, basically because fewer fish came back when whales were feeding there. So in some cases, it it depended a lot by species. It had a bigger effect on species that had a better return rates typically. Mm -hmm. So what we found was that some of these species, they weren't coming back. If the whales didn't eat them, somebody else was going to eat them and they weren't coming back. It was just a bad year for them. Um, Maybe the whale got ahead of another predator, but they weren't making it all the way to being um, a, a fishable size in high enough numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but other other salmon that got released a little bit larger um, were more successful and had higher return rates. And there you could really see a difference where it was significant. If there were whales at the release site, then there were fewer fish that came back and we could put a number on that. So we don't know, you know, what the impact of maybe other predators might have been. Um, but yeah, and of course the the hatcheries and the fishermen are not fond of the whales feeding right there on their little baby fish that they've just poured so much energy into nurturing. Um, but uh, yeah, there's uh, they're a little bit limited in, in what they can do to prevent it directly, but they can right. do things like um, releasing in a different location so that the whales don't know where the fish are going to come out, releasing them at a larger size so that they're better swimmers by the time they get around the whales and they're they're more less or they're the larger fish tend not to group up as much so that probably helps them survive a little bit better um so they're they're trying a whole bunch of different things and um some of it's been pretty effective at um giving yeah getting the fish out there and getting them back without having whale predation yeah i can imagine keeping a humpback whale out is not as easy as like building a wall 
Yeah. And you're not going to ever just be like, well, we'll just give it enough so it's satisfied and then the rest of the fish will get out. Like they're just, they're big eaters. So. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Stay tuned for a little preview of next week's episode featuring Ellen. And don't forget to like and follow wherever you're listening and leave a review. And this is a perspective that uh, has been, you know, part of indigenous culture in Southeast Alaska forever. I mean, it's just, it's essential to how people were able to survive on this land and thrive on this land. And so this is a, that's kind of the focus of our project is looking at research projects that high school students in rural Alaska can do that are consistent with the priorities and values of their local tribal organizations, 